Uh, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And if you have a black Bible from the back, that can be found on page 872. Once again, that's Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And please remember, we're reading God's word. There were some present that at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Salem fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, so we're kicking off this series today, Scandalous, and we're going to look at five different, of, five different things that Jesus said that were kind of more shocking. Uh, and, and the reason for this is there's a whole lot, as you look at the Bible, that Jesus taught, um, and a lot of people that have quite a misconception of Jesus, who he was. Uh, we, we tend to make Jesus up in our own image, uh, make him up in our own mind, and sort of imagine him to be like we'd hope for him to be, kind of like Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson uh, obviously had a great influence in shaping our country, uh, but personally, in terms of his spiritual life, he, you can actually uh, get a Thomas Jefferson Bible. Uh, Thomas Jefferson basically put it upon himself to say, there are some things the Bible says that I agree with, and so I'll keep those, and there are some things that I just don't really like, and so I won't keep those. And we all sort of tend to do that. We tend to go, well, I gravitate towards this image of Jesus. For most of us, it's the loving, the kind, the forgiving. Some of you actually gravitate more towards the, like, in-your-face Jesus. You'll love this series. Um, but, but there's a lot that if we, if we just pick and choose what Jesus said, we wouldn't maybe um, think to talk about. And so we've actually gone the opposite direction this time and specifically chosen some tougher uh, things that Jesus had to say. Um, and one of them comes really uh, in an appropriate way on this anniversary of 9-11 as an answer to, the, to this question. What should we learn from seeing horrible suffering? Especially what should we learn from seeing horrible, what seems like undeserved suffering? The kind of suffering that comes out of nowhere, right? And we're very familiar now in our day with this kind of suffering. We're familiar, I mean, 9-11 was a very poignant moment where it's like, yes, that is clear suffering and seems to be totally undeserved. Since then, we've had Katrina, right? I mean, did, did somebody, how'd that happen, right? And then you got Haiti, and then you got, I mean, just on and on, and tornadoes, and more hurricanes, and more tropical things, and all this stuff. And so 10 years later, there's all these questions we could ask about why does that happen, and why does God allow that to happen, and if God loved us, wouldn't he stop that from happening, and, and what, what should we, how should we respond to it now in terms, of, in terms of war, and race relations, and Islam, and on and, on. and you can just go in all kinds of different directions. But what we're going to look at today is a moment when Jesus heard the news about the 9-11 of his day. And, and he's going to show us, here's what you learn from this kind of thing. It's not going just to, so, just so you know up front, it's not going to answer all your questions about 9-11. It's not going to answer all your questions about how evil and God and his sovereignty works and all that stuff. But it is going to answer the question, what should we learn from these kinds of things? 
And here's why this is so important, is because all of us are experiencing undeserved suffering. We're witnesses to it. Some of, some of us are experiencing it personally. You're experiencing it personally, right? There's these macro things, and then there's all these micro 9-11s. All these times when out of the blue, out of nowhere, right, it was a beautiful, clear blue sky day, and you went into your boss's office, and they said, sorry, you can't work here anymore. We're downsizing. Your husband walked in and said, honey, I don't love you anymore. And, and you can fill in the blanks. You, you, you know your life. You went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you need to sit down for a minute. We need to talk. Right? All these, all these little 9-11 moments that happen personally for you. And I don't say that to sort of trivialize the magnitude of what actually happened on September 11th, but to say our lives are filled with all this suffering, and it seems to come out of nowhere. And we very often don't know how are we to respond to it. And especially when we see it in the lives of other people, what should we think of it and how should we respond? That's the, that's the idea that we're headed into today. Uh, so as we look at Luke chapter 13, uh, we want to talk a little bit maybe about the context before we dive into these specific things. Uh, the book of Luke is one of four Gospels uh, that explains Jesus' life and his teaching um, and his ministry and his death and resurrection. And in Luke chapter 13, uh, which is right about the middle of the book, uh, we find Jesus on a couple-month pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He'd been teaching, and mostly in Galilee, which is kind of up in northern Israel. He'd been teaching and casting out demons and, and healing the sick and feeding the hungry and proclaiming the good news and demonstrating the good news. He'd been doing all this. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew the mission that he came for. The mission that Jesus Christ came for was to live a perfect life, to die on a cross and be raised again. He's going to talk about that actually just a moment in, in a couple passages just, just past this. That's his focus. And so in Luke 9, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And so they're taking a, some time to get there. And along the way, Luke is introducing us to a number of interactions that he has. Oftentimes, they're with people who are trying to kind of trap Jesus. People who don't really like Jesus. They don't like his message. They don't like what he's about. This is generally the religious establishment. And so they're constantly trying to kind of trap him and ask him a question and get him to do something that's going to get him in trouble with Rome and on and on. And every time they do, by the way, it's interesting, they come back and they say, no one spoke like this man. Like, we can't, we can't trap him. He's too wise for us. And this is how, this is how Jesus is. So he's been teaching, he's been talking specifically just before this at the end of chapter 12 about interpreting the times and how to understand judgment and the importance and the necessity of uh, making things right when you have things against one another. And it says uh, in verse 13, there were some there, or there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So these people are listening to Jesus and they, they mention to him, they tell him this news. And, and we don't know from the story if this is breaking news, right? Isn't every news breaking news right now? Um, but, but, but they're telling him, hey, hey, Jesus, did you hear about this? Makes me think of, of that question, right? Where were you when you heard about September 11th? We all kind of have our story. We could all remember that. 
And, and so this is presumably the time that Jesus hears about this. Now, maybe he'd heard about it before. We don't know. The Bible doesn't record uh, this specific event anywhere else. There's not a lot of other information about it. But they give him this news. And here's basically the news. Here's what they say. Uh, Pilate was the governor, the Roman governor of, of this area. So Israel was not an independent nation. They were, they were subjugated by Roman authority. They were free to worship and to do commerce and to do some things like this, but occasionally the government of Rome would step in and impose itself, and that's apparently what happens here. Um, so, so there's these Jews from Galilee, the, the northern part. They've made a, a long journey down to Jerusalem to worship, to make sacrifices. And some point in there, Pilate, the governor, orders the army into the temple, and they kill these people. We don't know, is it two people, ten people? We don't know. But there they, I mean, imagine if, imagine if the Marines stormed in here to kill some of us today. Some countries that happens. Hasn't happened here yet. Hopefully it never will. But imagine, I mean, that, that's, that's what's going on. And so if you're a Jew uh, who, who worships at the temple, clear, I mean, you've, you've heard this news. This is shocking news to you. This is, who could do something like that? that that's, that's what you thought on September 11th, 10 years ago, wasn't it? Who could do something like that? How could that happen? And so they say to him, Jesus, did you hear about this? And uh, Jesus has heard about it. Now, Jesus has a reaction to this. Je Jesus asks them a set of questions that helps us see uh, some of what they were intending by bringing this up to Jesus. Uh, it doesn't seem that they were bringing up as much to go, what an outrage, how could Pilate do this? Instead, they seem to be um, saying, well, well, let's just look at Jesus. Let's see what he says about it. Jesus is going to ask two questions in verses 2 and 4 that are basically going to ask this question. Do people suffer because they're worse sinners? So did these people in the temple die because God was judging them? Is that what it was? Look at verse 2. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? The word suffered means to be struck or to be hit. They've been hit with this. They didn't see it coming. Wham, there it is. Bang. They're hit. They're struck. They're suffering in this way. And Jesus asked them, do you think that those people were worse? Is that why this happened to them? So Jesus isn't really talking about Pilate. He's not going to talk about the injustice of of whether uh, Pilate should have done this. Clearly he shouldn't have. But instead he's going he's gonna to look at these people and say, are you assuming that you're better than those people? Do you assume that those people who experienced this death were worse than you? He asks the same kind of question in verse 4. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? It's striking, isn't it? We're talking about a tower falling. I mean, the parallel there is, is interesting. Uh, and it seems like Jesus, in the first case, where you know, you've got a human doing an evil thing, in the second one with the tower, you have this seeming, seemingly sort of, I mean, the, the pool, maybe you've read in the Gospels about the pool of Siloam. People would go there. And so there seems to be a, a part of that wall or that tower that fell over and killed some people. Seemed like a random thing, right? So, so Jesus is saying, whether it's an evil thing done by a person, or whether it's just a natural disaster that happens bad, is your assumption that it only happens to people who deserved it? Is that, is that your assumption? 
And what Jesus is revealing is a cultural sort of way of thinking that's probably a little bit different than ours. So if you're right now even going like, where are you going? Like, I don't get it. The reason you don't get it is because you don't share the cultural assumption that they share. See, the people Jesus is talking to, their assumption was really bad suffering happens to really bad sinners. If something of calamity has happened in your life, it's probably because you deserved it. That's kind of their thought. It's, it's a karma type thing. What goes around comes around, that kind of thing. And so you, you read a couple of places in the Bible where you can see that people had this mentality. One is in the book of Job. In Job chapter 4, Job has had all sorts of bad things happen to him, and his friends, in an effort to comfort him, their method of comfort is to say, Job, listen, man, this wouldn't have happened to you unless you screwed up. How'd you screw up? Here's what they say. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? They're going, Job, man, you clearly can't be upright. You clearly aren't innocent because bad things happen to people who deserve them. That's what he's saying in Job. We get the same kind of mentality in John chapter 9. Jesus is with his disciples. They see a man who's blind, and uh, they ask him this, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You get it? This is like, this is like, you're talking karma and that whole thing. This is like, did, did his parents, like, was it they went crazy on spring break in college and, you know, then they had this kid 10 years later and it was born blind and that was God's way of like judging them for that? Or was it his fault? Jesus goes on to answer and say, it, it's, not, it's not any of those. It's, it's that God would be glorified. But you see the assumption that they have. And then to me, one of the funniest ways that you sort of see this superstitious assumption of uh, suffering only happens to bad people comes from Acts chapter 28. This is uh, one of the last recorded um, journeys that Paul has as a missionary. And it says when he got, he's, he's off in this sort of tribal area, and it says when he gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat. A viper is like a snake, right? A serpent. And fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You get their connection? Clearly, this bad thing is happening because he's a bad person. He must be a murderer, right? They say clearly. And then, in an interesting reversal, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. I mean, this is comical, isn't it? Like, you're a murderer. Let's worship him. Right? I mean, like, but it's just this idea of that you can interpret somebody's past and all that they've done by whether good or bad things happen to them. This, by the way, is how most of the world functions and thinks. For the most part, we assume that if we're good, good things should happen to us. If you're bad, bad things should happen to you. It's a superstitious kind of thing. I, I used to, um, a couple years ago, I was doing chapel, baseball chapel for the Oakland A's when they were here for spring training. And I would always sort of internally mock these major league baseball players because half of them would come into chapel with their bats. They, we're having a 15-minute chapel service. I open the Bible, say something, and they're there with their bats like 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 rabbit's feet. Like if I bring my bat, I'll get some hits today. And it's clearly superstitious and ridiculous. And yet, 
I remember even as a, as a newer Christian playing baseball in college where I would have times where if, if I was in a big slump, I would assume God is angry with me. I must have not done, right? And people would ask you, man, are you living right? You living right? Like if you're living right, you shouldn't be in a slump. So, so it's a different mentality than, than we have to some degree, um, but it's not that different. So you see, that's, that's the mentality they have. And, and here's, here's basically the difference as it relates to then and today. Um, then, if you ask, as Jesus is asking, do you think those people who suffered were worse than you? Then they would have said, probably. I hope so. Because if, you know, if I'm better than them, then, then I'm not going to experience anything like that. So that's how they would have acted. If, if we were asked that question, if Jesus came to us and said, do you think the people who died in 9-11 were worse sinners than you? What would we say? We'd say, no, they were innocent. And so am I. And here's what Jesus is going to do in the next verse. He's going to say, you're both wrong. He's going to confront both of us in our deal. So, so they would say, clearly I'm better. We would say, no, we're not any better, but we do deserve good things. And that's where we're the same. We, we, fundamentally, those people back in this story and us today, we assume that because I'm a good person, I deserve to have a comfortable life. That's our assumption. We live that way. We think that way. This is why we're quick to excuse ourselves. This is why we're quick to try to control our world as we assume that if we are doing good things, we deserve to have a comfortable life. It's why when the, the first bad thing happens to us, we cry out in anger against God. God, how could you do this? How dare you do this? Don't you know how much I've served you? Don't you know how much good I've done? And yet hundreds of thousands of good things will happen in our lives and we never stop to truly thank God for any of it. It's because we believe, like they did, good people deserve a good life. Jesus poses this question. These people that have been struck down by terror, these people that a tower has fallen on them, are they worse than you? What's his answer? His answer is this, no. They're not worse, but you should repent. This is what we see in verses 3 and 5. Verses 3 and 5, interestingly, are the exact same uh, verse. So if you follow the progression, in verse 2 he says, do you think the Galileans were worse? Verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then in verse 4, he brings up the issue of the tower. What about these tower? Were those people worse? And then he says again in verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus says, I'll see your Pilate sacrifice thing, and I'll raise it. What about this random thing? Were those people worse? And in both cases, he says, no, no. This idea that great suffering is always caused by great individual sin, no. That's what he says. That, that was John 9, John 9, 2, and 3, where they said, Rabbi, uh, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And then you see the next slide, Jesus' response to that. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We don't know why all the bad things in the world that happen, happen. We don't know. 
And as soon as you go, well, here's the reason. <laughs> really? You, you, you think you know the reason that God did something? How about the fact that there could be 10,000 reasons why God did something? This is why it's so foolish when someone, do you remember like Jerry Falwell right after this? And after every subsequent thing, right? Why did 9-11 happen? This is God's judgment on America for paganism and, and homosexuality and Democrats and, you know, whatever else that Jerry Falwell thinks is a problem, right? I mean, this, that's sort of the mentality. This is God's judgment. That is, that is so small-minded to say that you know the reason. And Jesus says, no, that's, 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 not, that's not the reason. Suffering is not always related to specific sin. Now, now get this. This has got to be important. We have to see. Suffering does happen because of sin. Right? 9-11 happens because we live in a world plagued by sin. And so let's define terms for a moment, can we here? Sin. What is sin? So many, many of you would think of sin as breaking the rules, and to be sure it is that. It's missing the mark. It's God saying, obey this, and we disobey it. But sin is also, as Tabitha pointed out earlier as she shared her story, sin is also enslaving yourself to something other than God. Sin is looking to anything other than the one true God to find your hope and to find your satisfaction and to find your joy and to base your life on it. That's what sin is. And all of us, every single person, the scripture says, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. So, so all of us have sinned. And the wages of sin is death, the scripture says. The result of being in a sinful world is that we live in a world with suffering and pain and death. So did the people die in 9-11 because of sin? Yes. In a world without sin, they, that wouldn't have happened. Did they die because of their sin? Jesus would say, no. But. Unless you repent, you'll die too. That's what he's saying. He's saying, for those of you who just smugly think, well, I'm much better than them, I, I, I'm clearly a better person. No, you're not. You're not better. And it's not because of that. But for those of you who think, no, all those people were innocent and so am I, no, you're not innocent either. You can't just blame it on that that person sinned, therefore they get this. But when you see this, when you look at this kind of suffering that seems undeserved, Jesus says the right response is to repent. That's what it says. You must repent. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what is it to repent? This is a word we talk about quite a bit because it has a lot to do with the gospel. The idea is that every person is pursuing something other than God. They're enslaving themselves to something other than God. And so the word repent means to change your mind, usually with an element of remorse and sorrow, and to turn around towards God. To say, rather than pursuing my own selfish interests, rather than pursuing everything that I think will bring me joy, I will change my mind. And I will reorient myself towards God. And then faith is walking towards God. Faith is believing in God. That's repentance and faith. And Jesus is saying, unless you repent, 
Unless you realize that you are always headed away from God, there will be a time in your life when something happens out of nowhere. And just like the people who were sacrificing and didn't know they were going to be cut down, and just like the people who were at the pool and the tower falls at them, and just like the people who went to work on that Tuesday morning, boom. Your life is a vapor. And Jesus is saying, the moment will come when just like they perished in an unexpected moment, that moment's coming for you. And unless you repent, unless you turn away from yourself and your sin and towards God, when that moment comes, rather than entering into the joy of heaven and the presence of God, you will perish. The word perish means to experience destruction, to be ruined. It's the same Greek word uh, that is used um, in Revelation, talking about Apollyon, the destroyer. This is to be destroyed. This is to experience uh, pain and difficulty and death. And so we are to be people who repent. Now, interestingly, the word repent uh, in the language is a continual present tense verb. So he's not saying, unless you repent once, he's saying, unless you are repenting, you will likewise perish. Now that's interesting, because what that means is that that means this verse, this reality applies to people who have never repented before and are turning to Jesus for the first time, and it also applies to those of you who have followed Jesus for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, is unless you are living a life of repentance, you will perish. Now, this, get this. This has got to be clear. This doesn't mean you get saved over and over and over again. Like you repent once, and you get saved, and then you sin again, and you lose it, and then you got to repent again. And then you, it's just saying that, listen, if you know the depth of your sin, if you know the holiness of God, if you know that Jesus is your only solution, then your life will be a continual one of repentance, of turning away from all the new idols that your heart and your idol factory creeps up, and you will turn away from that and pursue God. Here's how Martin Luther put it in his 95 Theses. The, if you know Martin Luther, he, he unwittingly uh, started the Protestant Revolution, and the way he, uh, Rev, Reformation. I like revolution. <laughs> Reformation. Let's say that. I like that. He's down here. I can go. Is that right? Um, Brett's my guy. So, um, Protestant Reformation, and the way he started it was by nailing these 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. These were things to be debated and discussed and and argued. And the first one, the top of his list, list says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That means for those of you who, uh, until this moment, were going, oh, this was for someone else. This is for my uncle or my brother. I wish I'd invited them. No, no, no. This is for you. This means that everybody here is called to live a life of repentance. And not by Martin Luther, but by Jesus. Do you see it? I mean, he says it twice. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus is saying, listen, those people that suffered aren't worse, and you're not better. Your day is coming. Your days are short. You need to repent or you will perish. 
So the question then is this, why don't we? Why don't we repent? Why are we so slow to do it, so unwilling to do it? Well, one reason would be pride. Especially for those of you who would not consider yourself to be a religious person. You go, okay, you're talking about sin and repentance, and those are like really religious ideas and spiritual ideas. Um, but sin, I mean, like, who are you to say that I'm a sinner? And I just don't, I don't know if I, if I see that. The, the reason why you, you don't even know if you see it is because you, like me, are proud. You're proud. You, you assume that you're more important than you are. And that God's less important than he is. So you're proud. And so as a result of that, you don't see your sin the way God sees it. Right? We see ourselves as we intend to be. God sees us as we are. You get that? Right? You view yourself through your intentions and your hopes and your aspirations. And maybe someday I'll... And God says, no, I see you as you are. It's a, it's a line from that song, Here for You. Nothing here is hidden. God sees it all. And the reason we won't repent, even though we know God sees it, is because of our pride. Our pride refuses to, to admit it. And so therefore we excuse it. We go, oh, well, you don't understand. Here's the situation, and here's why this happened, and here's why I react this way, uh, and, and here's my upbringing, and here's my, we, we excuse it, we deflect it. Well, what about you? Oh, you think you're so great? Oh, well, you, you do the same thing. We hide it. Don't want anyone to know. We minimize it. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it. I'm just a guy, blah, blah, blah. We don't repent because of pride. But if we will see ourselves as we actually are, we'll repent. For those of you who are more like spiritual people or more church people, here's why you don't repent. It's because of religion. Hmm. I don't repent because of religion? What do you mean? Well, here's the idea. is Religion, generally speaking, is the idea that you base your identity on how well you're performing your religious duties. So if you're a good person, then you know you're something. If you're a good person, God will like you. If you're a good person, you have standing in the religious community. And so therefore, you have to keep up appearances. You have to, you have to look good. And to admit that you're a sinner, which is what repentance is, to admit that there's, you don't have everything together, to admit that you need God's help is admitting that you are weak. And that's a threat to your appearance, so you don't do it. Here's how Tim Keller says it. He's got a great article on this called All of Life is Repentance. He says in religion, our hope is to live a good enough life for God to bless us. Right? You, you just, if I do, this is karma. This is religious karma. This, this is Christian, the Christian version. If I read my Bible enough, if I do, then God will bless me. Therefore, every instance of sin and repentance is traumatic, unnatural, and horribly threatening. Only under great duress does a religious person admit they have sinned, because their only hope is their moral goodness. Do you find yourself repenting? Less and less. Confessing sin, less and less. Giving yourself the benefit of the doubt more and more. If so, you're proud and you're religious. And here's how I know. Because so am I. 
many of you know Matthew Brazelton uh, and I. He's, he's one of our pastors, leads worship, and is an associate pastor here. We've been good friends for uh, most of the time that I've lived in Arizona. I've lived here just over nine years. And about a year into that, uh, Matthew and I were serving in a college ministry at another church in town. He was uh, doing financial planning, uh, and I was... Uh, selling software, and we were just volunteering, leading this ministry, became really good friends. Our families became close, and, and Matthew and I developed the kind of relationship that I, that I wish all of you could have, which is that there's somebody in your life that knows all your junk and still loves you. I just wish that everyone could have that, and I wish that you could have that from someone, not just from a spouse. Someone would go, oh, that's what, my, that's what my wife is for, that's what my husband is for, and, and to a degree, for sure, they, they should know your, I mean, they know your junk better than anybody, and they should still love you, but I, but I wish you would have, if you're a guy, I wish you'd have another guy, if you're a woman, I wish you'd have another woman that, that would know that, not a bunch of people, right? You don't want a bunch of people knowing all your junk, but like one, and so Matthew and I had that kind of relationship. And we could ask each other those, those questions. Hey, how you doing in this area? And, and I noticed this, and man, I just don't think that's the direction you want to go down. And, and when we just blew it on our own, we could just, we just come and say, hey man, I, I, it's just burning me up. I got to tell you something. And, and I know that you'll love me anyway, but we, we got to talk. And, um, and so, so we had that kind of relationship. And, and you know, then I went and planted uh, this church, and then Matthew followed a little bit later, and, and just in the last couple months, we were talking, and we were kind of talking about some of, some of Matthew's junk. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> and uh, after we were kind of sorting that through, um, you know, he said, he said, man, I just, I don't feel like you're as open about your stuff as you used to be. Like, we used to, you know, like, I, I, I just am not sure I even know really what you're struggling with anymore. He said, I don't know if it's because, like, technically you're my boss or, like, you, you have this elevated role that you didn't have then or, but that was, that was the Holy Spirit saying to me, Luke, you're being proud, being religious, trying to keep up appearances. Here's this brother that loves you. And so what I needed at that moment was the gospel. I needed the gospel to tell me I'm loved and accepted not on the basis of my appearance or how well I can hide or deflect things. I'm accepted on the basis of Jesus who sees all my junk, paid for it on the cross, and is gradually by his spirit setting me free from it. And so we need to repent. And for sure it needs to be before God, but, but it also probably needs to be to someone else. Is there someone else that knows? Or are you just so proud? Or you're just so religious? Or, boy, they think highly of me, and if they knew this, they wouldn't think that highly of me anymore. You know what that is? That's religious pride. Repent of it. That's why we don't repent. Why should we repent? Why must we repent? Jesus says, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. So that's one big reason we should repent, right? All in for not perishing, right? And here, here's the deal. We're all in for not perishing as long as it's easy. Like, yeah, mark me down for that. Or let me pray a prayer. Or let me read my Bible and show up at church once in a while. And man, there's football on today. I get double checks for that. 
that, that, that's not what Jesus is talking about. As we'll see throughout the rest of the series, Jesus is talking about an all of life, ongoing, all the time, turning away from yourself and pursuing him. If you're ready for that, then you won't perish. But there's more the Bible talks about in terms of why we should repent. So this is for sure the reason he gives in this passage. But other passages tell us that one of the reasons we should uh, repent is to experience forgiveness. To experience forgiveness. In Acts 2, at the birth of the church, uh, Peter talks about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And the people are cut to the heart and they say, what should we do? And his answer is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you don't repent only to avoid God's wrath. You, you repent so that you can get God himself, right? Do you see that? You get the gift of the Holy Spirit. You get your sins washed away. The punishment that you deserve falls on Jesus. And so repentance brings forgiveness. Every time you repent, as you live this ongoing life of turning away from sin and back to Jesus, there is cleansing, there is renewal. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive our sins. That means he has to forgive your sin because it's been placed on Jesus. He's just, just to do that and to cleanse you from unrighteousness. If you will repent and turn to Christ. Why else must we repent? To bring joy to God. To bring joy to God. Go, uh, you're in Luke 13. Go to the right. Go to Luke 15. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a couple of parables specifically directed at religious people that are having a hard time with the idea that God would just invite all these sinners to be part of uh, his deal. And... Uh, and he's talking about repentance. And he says in verse 7, he says, I tell, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That, that's talking about the parable of the lost sheep. There was the sheep and it was lost and they went and found it. And there's this joy because what was lost was found. And then the next story is the parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10 coins. She loses one. She sweeps the house till she finds it. When she finds it, there's this great party. And Jesus says in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he's going to go into this whole story about the prodigal son who who has this wildly extravagant life and repents and comes home. But I love this. I love verse 10. Look at, look at Luke 10. We don't have it on here, just, just in, your, in your Bible there. Luke 15, 10. Did you catch this? Whose joy is Jesus talking about here? Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents? Whose joy is it? It's not the angels. You see, it doesn't say there's joy in the angels of God. There's joy before the angels of God. Well, the angels of God, what are they doing? They're focusing all their attention. If you read Revelation and you read Isaiah 6 and you read a lot of different things, the angels of God are focusing on God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're looking at Him and they're praising Him. And this says that there is joy before the angels of God. What the angels of God are looking at is joy. Whose joy? God's joy. 
It thrills the heart of God when his people see that won't satisfy me. That won't come through. That is just a man-made idol. And we turn from that and we turn to him. That thrills his heart. So we don't just repent out of fear or out of being threatened by punishment. But we repent because we get God. Just like we don't repent just because we're sorry for the consequences of the sin. We're sorry for the sin itself. Has anyone ever done this to you? Where they, they give you one of these non-apology apologies? Athletes and celebrities are famous for this. But, but has anyone ever said this to you? I'm really sorry if that hurt you. Like, if it didn't hurt you, I'm not sorry. But if it hurt you, I'm sorry. Right? Like, that's just being sorry over the consequences of something. That's not getting the level of true biblical repentance, which is saying, I'm sorry over my sin. And and, and all the consequences it brought are irrelevant. I'm just sorry that it broke the heart of God, and so I will turn back to him in confidence that he will accept me because of the gospel. So I love these final quotes by Tim Keller in that article. He says this, in the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit we're flawed. Because we know we won't be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. If you confess who you truly are, God's not going to say, out of my presence. Instead, he's going to say, welcome in. He continues, our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. So it is not so traumatic to admit our weaknesses and lapses. God was never impressed with you anyway. He was impressed with Jesus. He never, like, you didn't let him down. He knew it was coming. He says, in religion, we repent less and less often. But the more accepted and loved in the gospel we feel, the more and more often we'll be repenting. The more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of your sin. When we see suffering, when we see pain, It should remind us, our days are short, our day is coming, and we need to repent. Let's pray together. God, we we thank you for the promise that we won't be cast off, that whoever would confess their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and that you raised him from the dead, that they would be saved. God, give us insight to see ourselves as we truly are, not as we hope to be or intend to be, but as you see us. And then give us the courage to repent of that and to turn from you or turn from that to you and experience your grace. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.